Hey, it's Jeff Benjamin here with Investment News, and this is the Investment News Podcast. I'm here again with my colleague, Bruce Kelly. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. We even have a special guest coming in from Investment News' reporting staff, but uh, kicking it off with you, Bruce Kelly, and a piece you've been working on for a while on the NFL Players Association and uh, financial advice for those players. Uh, Bruce, how you doing? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I'm doing great. I think the, the, the 2,000 players in the Players Union, which is the NFL Players Association, I think they're doing maybe just even a little bit better uh, for a couple of reasons. Football actually started this week. The New York Jets and the New York Giants both lost in terrible fashion, so we're off to a normal start of the year. Here. Patriots were undefeated, so that's normal also. <laughs> With their new QB, you know? <laughs> But Who needs regardless a QB? Of their... They're the Patriots. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> They're the powerhouse. Right. And so regardless of whether they win or won or lost, they should be feeling a little bit better about their financial outlook and their financial overall financial plan. And why is that, you ask, Jeff Benjamin? Well, I'll tell yeah. you. Why it's is because that? about 20 years ago, as you know, the NFL Players Association, the union, the NFLPA, we'll call it, they launched something called a financial advisor program. And so they set up a list of maybe 100, 150 um, RIAs and advisors um, who had to apply, go through limited kinds of background checks and the like, and um, had some vetting done to them. And then player sports agents, after these guys signed the big contracts, right, would say, okay, you need a financial advisor now, go to uh, you know, Joe Smith at Joe Smith's advisory, you know, in Boston or Chicago or something like that. And that was the uh, essence of the program. And over the years, the program has had some successes, but it's also had some failures too. There've been uh, a handful of advisors who've been on the list of the NFL PA uh, financial advisor um, program, and they turned out to be running money, uh, multi-million dollar uh, swindles or frauds of some kind. So um, the last big one was back in 2013, 2014. Um, it involved investing in casinos down in the Mississippi Gulf. <laughs> you can just smell the Elmore Leonard type of novel or plot coming out of something like that. Some big named uh, players, uh, T.O. Terrell, uh, Terrell Owens, uh, Ploxico Burris, a couple of other guys, lost money in here. And I think it was a real wake-up call to the NFL PA. And they said, hey, we got to do a better job uh, of, of uh, providing financial advisors for our guys. And so they've done two significant things. About three or four years ago, they started making it mandatory that, hey, if you want to be on our list, someone at your firm has to have a CFP or a CFA, right? The Certified financial planner designation or the chartered financial analyst. And you know that those two are the big bears, right, of the financial advice industry, the two big bear designations. They're the toughest and the most preeminent, really, I believe. And then just within the past 12 months, they did something else, and which was very interesting. They started inviting big name firms, including 12 months ago, Goldman Sachs, and over the summer, Morgan Stanley, to become part of this, this program of vetted advisors. So now Morgan Stanley, like a lot of firms, has a big sports and entertainment group. So if you're a rookie player for the Jets or the Giants or your beloved Patriots, 
or Tom Brady's new team, the Tampa Bay Bucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, hope you didn't cry too much when Tom left. Uh, left <laughs> Tom who? The there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can go to a Morgan. You can go to Morgan Stanley now and say. Hey, you know, um, I have this contract. The, these are going to be my financial needs over the short term or the long term. Why does this matter so much for football players? Well, football players have shorter careers, they make less money, and they run a higher risk of injury, right? Mm-hmm. And also, if the, based on those shorter careers, if, if a guy gets married when he's 22, plays for eight years, gets divorced when he's 32, what is the judge going to decide the alimony on? What you made when you're in your 20s, not what you're making in your 30s, right? So these guys have really unique financial planning needs. And also by including the big firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley in the program now, if say, if you do get invested in a hedge fund that goes belly up or something like this, something goes askew, you now have the recourse of uh, filing a claim against a big firm. And big firms are much better at paying out claims than small firms that go belly up and leave all kinds of liabilities outstanding, you know? So I, it's, it's my initial thought was, Hey, thinking about all this, the NFLPA financial advisor program, it's been around for 20 years. It's finally maturing. It's finally growing. Up. How many advisors are, uh, have, have qualified in, they have to- 150 advisors right now or advisory okay. firms on, on is, their list. Is it difficult to get on that list aside from having the credentials? How, how, how you got to go. There's a whole mess of, uh, you can go on their website and find out if you're a financial advisor, but there's, you know, there's a whole mess of um, uh, uh, background check type things that you have to, that you have to do, that you have to sign. You have to pay a $2,500 sign up fee. You have to pay, you have to uh, be in the business, the industry for at least eight years. You have to have clean regulatory records, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, so those are just the minimums, right? To try right. to even get on the list, you know? Well, and so once you're on the list, that doesn't guarantee you're going to have an NFL player for a client, right? You got to not at all do that on your own, I guess. Or have you still got to go out there and prospect with the sports agents, right? Because the agents are the guys who control the clients, who control the players. Yeah. So a lot of financial advisors, I know they sit there and they kind of dream about, oh my god, I'm a huge Red Sox fan, I'm a huge Yankees fan. Wouldn't it be uh-huh. cool if I could? get, you know, the next shortstop for the Red Sox or the Yankees as a client, you know? Well, it takes a guys who have advisors who have successful sports practices, you know, it's not an immediate thing. They put years, decades into it, you know, to get these uh, NFL players and and these entertainers. Do you know if uh, the other major sports have, leagues have similar criteria? They do not. Interesting. I think because of the special as a the special circumstances of being in the NFL they kind of went out of their way to do this for their players again they have shorter the football players have shorter careers they make less money they're more likely to get injured and then they also have lavish some of them have lavish lifestyles too right which need pruning and or or, or not pruning but um, need observation essentially yeah managing yeah yes I didn't know they made less money I thought they made Mountains of money, but uh, I guess it's well, they all get less when it, you're it, a billionaire. Baseball and 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 um, basketball, they get guaranteed money. So if you sign a hundred million dollar contract, right, in one of those sports, and then you get hit by a car, you're still you're still going to get paid, you right? Know? 
Um, in football, they front load all the contracts, right? Okay. And then that's your guaranteed money. So maybe 50% of, of a $75 million contract is guaranteed. And mm-hmm. then they can opt, the team has the option, I believe, to opt out after a while, you know? So it's, it's guaranteed money and then, and then money that might come to you later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess if, uh, if you're a financial advisor trying to get to work, start to work with athletes, it would be easier to start in other leagues. Um, <laughs> you know, it might it's be good for the NFL players because there's this extra level of or layer of protection there. But uh, if you're trying to get into the field, you can imagine that if you're if you're a financial advisor, you get yourself a couple of baseball players, basketball player, and then you can go to the NFL and say, I'm already doing this. I know how to manage money for athletes. You got to meet those other criteria, but that might be a process. Hey, Jeff, I know you wanted to talk about active management here and whether or not active management can actually beat the mighty indexes that people seem to be all beholden to these days. Yeah. What's your thinking about that right now? Yeah, well, um, if you know, there are periods in market cycles when people always say active management should do well because uh, if you're in an index, you just get what the index does. If the market is down 30% like it was in February to March, uh, you're down. But an active manager might not own everything in an index or hopefully it doesn't. And that could be an advantage. But uh, what Morningstar found is some research. They looked at the first six months of this year and found that only 48% of uh, U.S. Uh, stock funds, actively managed stock funds, uh, beat their indexes. So it shows that even in what would be considered ideal scenarios, active management just has a hard time keeping up. And I mean, keep what, in mind- what does a, What's the number in a, in a more typical year where the market doesn't thrash around like it did earlier this year? Uh, I, I don't know what the market is. It's, it's, it's the active management has been beaten by passive, uh, strategies for 14 years running. So, and, and, and these are really generalized numbers because keep in mind that, you know, we're looking at all actively managed funds and active management, they start off with a little bit of a, a drag because of the fees and the more fees, the more the drag, for example, this year, the, the least expensive funds uh, beat their benchmarks 34% of the time compared to uh, 16% of the time for the most expensive funds. So it's, um, you know, fees do matter and index funds are just plain cheap for the most part. And also, you know, active management, it, it, it does play a role. You got to keep in mind, active management, they, they provide liquidity to the markets, they make markets efficient, and they really are necessary for passive funds to operate, which which kind of means that passive investors are are free riders in this. They're they're paying less money and they're uh and they're they're beating the their active uh counterparts. You know, active management is 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 what it is. There are the the further off the or the farther off the beaten path you go when it comes to active management strategies, the better you do. For example, this year only 35% of U.S. large cap blend, which is a pretty generic strategy, beat their benchmarks for six months of the year, which compares to 72% of European stock funds beating their benchmarks. With, uh, let me see, real estate categories, uh, they were, they, 80% of real estate funds beat their benchmarks this year. So, 
when you get more sophisticated, smaller cap strategies that are not in every single index or, or stocks that are not in every single index is where you're going to get an advantage in the active management space. I mean, active management, it's not going away, but you kind of got to pick and choose your way through there. And that's about it. So, Sounds hey, good. let's talk about uh, Raymond James. They uh, they had some, uh, they're cutting some fat over there, I guess, right? Looks like uh, they're uh, cutting the times fat are tough. or cutting bone. Yeah. Cutting fat or cutting bone, my friend. That's yeah, the big let's, question, right? Let's, let's um, find out. What, well, you so, wrote about that this week. What happened? So back in June, on our very, the very, the very first episode mm-hmm. of the Investment News podcast, we had a segment about dark clouds forming for financial advice-oriented firms, big firms, small firms, etc. Mm-hmm. When it came to layoffs and job cuts, and that was after looking at earnings and looking at different reports. Satara back in April reorganized some people, some senior people were uh, uh, laid off. Uh, back in June, Wells Fargo said there was going to be some job, job cuts coming. And I said, you know, uh, revenues are down related to the COVID. Asset levels were down. That eats into revenues, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Interest rates are back down to zero. That eats into the profitability of the firm because a lot th- these big financial institutions make a lot of money on uh, cash and the interest they earn on on client cash and the like. That's back down to zero uh, as the ten year is at record lows, as I understand. So back in June, I thought some layoff announcements could be coming over the summer. It had been pretty; it was pretty quiet in July and August. But then, lo and behold, the second week, third week of September here. Raymond James on Tuesday dropped some very bad news for four uh, percent of their workforce, around five hundred to five hundred fifty people in their uh, support staff and back office people. Uh, they were given uh, layoffs, uh, layoff notices. The firm made clear that they were giving severance to people and the like, and that the the amount of people that they were laying off only set them back by like down to. Um, a year to a year, year and a half ago where they were. So they had obviously been doing some hiring. Mm-hmm. But Raymond James has been, they're aggressive in cost cutting, it seems, I, I think, knowing their management as, a, as we do. And, you know, they've been aggressively expanding their financial advisor force too. So they've been recruiting like crazy. So their recruiting costs, which are essentially paid out in forms of bonuses, forgivable loans and notes and the like, to their advisors, they've been incurring expenses in that area too. So what does this mean for Raymond James going forward, you know, with recruiting? Can it keep up the, the pace of recruiting it's doing as it switches to more virtual recruiting? And what does it mean? Is, is, is Raymond James a bellwether here for other large uh, firms? Raymond James had around 13, 14,000 employees before all this, I believe. Yeah. So this affected 500 to 550 people. I think there are going to be more coming. You know, um, from Raymond James as, or across no, no, the industry? from in, across the industry. Okay, from the brokerage industry in particular. I think the brokerage industry is really hard hit by this return to zero percentage um, rates on, mm-hmm. on fixed income. You know, like. I I look at this, Bruce, and I'm kind of wondering if or how much of this is related to the you know the COVID related work from home, remote work, everyone, and when all these companies start to realize how well they can operate or continue to operate remotely and maybe it just 
it exposes some of the people, employees, and jobs that are less essential. I don't know. I I hate to sound so need, jaded. Do you need five guys in the mailroom, you know, or do yeah. you need three, you know, that kind of right. thing. So they, they might be thinking that way, like they're, like I talked to, uh, well, I, I listened to a presentation by Larry Fink earlier today, and he was talking, he says, we'll never be 100% back in the office at BlackRock. And so I'm wondering if a company like Raymond James sees the same thing and said, yeah, we're we're not going to need five people in the mailroom because we're only going to have one person in that building, in that office, you know, in that particular department. Yeah, from the internal announcement that Raymond James put out, and then in in in, in getting some background from uh, their PR people there, it seems like they're pointing the finger at COVID and saying this has hurt our profitability. Okay, right. It seems a little too fresh to me to say, you know, because you know how careful these for, these big for, uh, banks and brokerages are. It seems a little bit too soon to say where can we start pruning non-essential or workers or something like that. Uh, it would take more like a year, I think, knowing these companies as they operate, you know, because they're, 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 they're big, slow moving organizations. So I think they, they may have, it's, it sounds more like to me, they did a last uh, hired first fired kind of deal or oh. people who were in line to, um, you know, who, who were going to leave anyway, you know, after 20 years or whatever, you know, given it, given a chance to get out. You know, they just wanted to reduce their their expenses going forward because also Raymond James, unlike a lot of other companies, they begin their fiscal year um, October first, so they're 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 preparing for their year end right now. So their fiscal year starts October first. They end the year at the end of this month, September thirtieth. So what they're doing right now is very likely what you're going to see happen in December at other big banks and brokerages as they end their calendar slash fiscal year and prepare for 2021. All right. Well, hey, we have uh, coming up next our special guest, Emil Halle, a reporter at Investment News, talking to us about his big cover story on Eugene Scalia that he co-wrote with Mark Sheff. What do you say we get right into that, Bruce? Let's do it. Emile Halle, one of the newest additions to uh, the investment news staff. He became our insurance and retirement reporter earlier this year. Emile hasn't, uh, this is Emile's first time on the investment news podcast. And Emile, you are up in the great state of Maine. That's where you're working from home. And um, just wanted to say welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. You're going to be talking about your pro- profile of uh, a heavyweight from the Department of Labor. Yes, thanks, Bruce. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. I hope my first time on the show goes smoothly. How's it going up in Maine? It's interesting. It's starting to get a little bit cold, and the sky looks like Tupperware because we're getting some of that fire from the West Coast <laughs> or the smoke. Not, oh not no, the fire, really? Uh, fortunately, a little oh, bit. Man. Yeah, it's it's pretty unnerving. That's crazy. Obviously, not a huge inconvenience compared to what other folks are dealing with on the other side of the country. But yeah, things are good. I've got a sleeping cat sitting next to me and a, and a couple of dogs. <laughs> so they're providing some comfort during this incredibly okay. stressful uh, interview. 
That sounds like kind of country living, Grateful Dead living up there. You know, I like it. Who's that? The Grateful Dead, country living. You know, Grateful, Grateful Dead, Dead up in the, up no, in the cabin kidding, in the woods with are. the dogs <laughs> and the cats and everything. I don't know that song. I'm sorry. Hey, They're, a band. Um, They're an old band, the Grateful Dead, man. You know? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know the dead. I just... All right, I want to take you, get you hippies off your magic carpet for a moment here, and uh, I want to hear about this uh, this cover story. It it drops today, the day that this uh, podcast drops. Eugene Scalia, you you uh, co-authored it with uh, another investment news colleague, Mark Sheff. What was the kind of the motivation behind the 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 long and in depth profile that I understand uh, Mr. Scalia did not participate in? He did not. That is correct. He made a career out of challenging government regulations. In 2016, for example, he, he represented MetLife in the case against the Financial Stability Oversight Council and, and got rid of their SIFI uh, designation. Um, you know, has challenged the SEC on regulations several times. Yeah, I think one of the lines from your art, from the story that's the cover story, the lead story of the newspaper on Monday is um, that uh, basically through Scalia's attempts to sue the government, he's a guy who's had regulators looking over their shoulders ever since 2011 or 2012, right? When he had his first big win, I believe. So he's, he's obviously a, a heavy hitter and a very powerful guy. Yeah. And, and, and one of the questions that Mark posed, and I have to give him credit for doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the story, but he, he asked, would... Scalia sue Scalia. So in you know the the lawyer from private practice would he sue the Department of Labor as it stands right now? And the sources that he talked to said, you know, very much yes just on process alone. But you know, th- there have just been so many so many big things that have dropped over the past couple of months. The fiduciary uh, rule, the the proposed rule there, a proposed rule on the use of ESG funds in retirement plans and one that kind of accompanies that regarding proxy voting by pension plans. It has kind of, you know, arguably the same spirit there. And then a private letter to Pantheon Ventures uh, about the use of private equity in 401k plans. You know, what it seems is that there are all of these big regulations that the DOL is trying to push through before the end of the Trump administration, if in fact that ends this year, or I guess early next year. With the ESG rule, for example, you know this is an issue that the DOL has looked at and changed its position on to a small amount in the past few administrations. But by having it formalized in a rule rather than giving these guidance letters, it's something that could be much more difficult to overturn in the future. What is the status of that rule, Emil, uh, the ESG rule? And maybe you can break that down for us. It's a proposed rule right now. And the DOL solicited comments on that. I think it got more than 8,000 letters. And I believe the vast majority of them, something like 95%, according to one group that we talked with, were against it. And it's, it's so controversial because almost everyone, except for potentially the fossil fuel industry, is against this. The financial services industry is against it. What, what is the rule proposing? Yeah, what is the rule, though? What's the proposal? So it would basically 
greatly restrict more so than um, already is the case for the use of ESG funds or environmental, social, and governance funds in retirement plans. And planned fiduciaries would not be able to select such funds for the plan menu without exclusively considering what they call pecuniary factors. Or, or financial ones. So in the past, the DOL has, has made it clear that, yes, you can consider these things, but it's kind of a tiebreaker. So all things being equal, if you're looking at two funds, one ESG and one not, the fund that has ESG considerations, you can go ahead and use that to select that fund instead. Now it's basically just not part of the equation. And it, it, I should say that it doesn't it doesn't prevent or prohibit these investments from being in a 401k plan. It's just that the ESG component really can't be part of the conversation. Well, as I understand it, the, the restrictions, I don't even know if I'd call them restrictions, but it's just a new way of looking at the, or factoring in the ESG component is, is supposed to be uh, considered after they've looked at the things like fees and performance history, right? Yes. And and it's it's been a tiebreaker in the past. Right. But what's been a tiebreaker? The fees and performance? No, the ESG. The the use okay. of ESG. It's been kind of like, okay, that that's something that can put one investment kind of over the line when it's it's mm-hmm. tough to to choose between two of them. You know, and that's already kind of a, um, that's got to be kind of an unusual circumstance when you're, when you're looking to, to put funds on a plan menu. But part of the curious thing is that it's, it's not that ESG is, is very well defined right now. And so many, and, and Jeff, as you know, mutual funds include ESG factors all the time in their investment processes now, even if they don't call themselves ESG funds. So would that, for example, preclude funds from being included in 401k plans? It's just these things aren't clear right now. So yeah, we had we had Chef on about a month ago or six weeks ago. He he was beginning to look into this. That that's when this surfaced over the summer, I believe. And Chef kind of gave a little bit of background on it. It seems like in your to both of your reporting you guys have dug in a little deeper here on 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 the kind of information that you're that you're giving us yes yeah and it's you know this is this is really interesting because while it's always been something that has been on the DOL's radar and plan sponsors and participants have arguably shown more interest in ESG than they have in the past it's never really something that has made great inroads into 401k plans. I think, you know, fewer than, than 100 or one in 100 uh, plan participants, you know, are, are consciously invested in ESG funds. But this also wasn't something that the DOL made any indication it was looking at last year. And regulators usually set up kind of a roadmap for the proposed rules that they plan on dropping in the year ahead. So this, I think this actually caught a lot of folks off guard a little bit. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of an indication of Scalia's way of, you know, working or, or his personality or something that he's, he's just kind of pushing through uh, these assorted, you know, changes and, and, and rule proposals and the like 
is that kind of his, did you get a take of the guy and his personality at, because yeah. he's an extremely skilled lawyer, right? Obviously he's one of the top lawyers in Washington. It would seem after reading your, your piece, you know, when it comes to this area. Yeah. And, and arguably there is, you know, in recent memory, there, there may not have been someone who was ever so competent for the position in terms of knowing it as an outsider and an insider. But his agenda is very different from labor secretaries in the past. And, you know, I, I talked to one lawyer who has known him since he was 10 years old. And he said that he actually introduced Mr. Scalia to his, uh, his future wife. And, you know, what he had to say was he's incredibly intelligent. I don't think anybody would question that. But he also apparently has a sense of humor. I, I personally haven't seen that. Um, I would like to. He's a family <laughs> man. He's got seven right. kids. He takes them all on individual trips and spends time with them. And so he, he's a pretty dedicated family man. Who doesn't want ESG funds in retirement plans <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> so it would seem. So you know, and everything that's on his agenda, everything he wants to accomplish, he has to be looking at this as a very limited amount of time. Because as we all know, there is a very good chance that Donald Trump is not going to be president come January. And you know, if that happens, there is no question that he is no longer going to be labor secretary and will be replaced with somebody else. So all that stuff, all those opportunities, go out the window. So he's playing beat the clock now too. Basically. I think so. And that's, you know, that's not that's not uncommon, but just I think it's it's the pace of these, you know, these big rules and initiatives that are getting pushed through kind of um, at the last second. Right. I mean, usually these come am I my perception of what Mark and and you do and Mark and the, you know, and before you Greg Iacursi, you know, usually there's it's one of these things at a time, you know. At, from Department of Labor, or the SEC, or something. There's like one big thing at a time mm-hmm. that affects retail investors to be juggling a few different things, all in the final, potentially the final months of an administration, seems unusual. I'm not sure. I, I can't speak to the history of that, but right. I, I don't think that's that's too far off base. You know, like, like you said, it is a race against the clock, and you know things like the ESG proposed rule. And there's a separate one that pertains to pension plan fiduciaries, kind of limiting the proxy voting that they can do. They're, they're not, they wouldn't be allowed to, to vote on um, corporate shareholder issues that aren't financial in nature as it relates to the plan. So that, that takes ESG considerations off the table for them. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did you enjoy writing the piece? Or was it a complete pain in the, pain in the rear? <laughs> you know, it, it, it would have been really nice to actually talk to uh, Eugene Scalia personally. Um, it's always difficult to write about somebody and you don't actually get to talk to the person you're going to. You know, and I know that, you know, people high up in government can be difficult to reach, um, especially if you're at a trade publication. I, I don't know if any past labor secretaries would have given me the time of day. But, you know, we went to pretty great lengths to try to contact him. I actually found his private email address and sent him a note and then heard back very quickly from the DOL that I had to go through the official channels and trying to reach him. Well, that's great. I mean, I mean, you gave them every opportunity, right, to, to talk and to, you know, even to talk on background, you know, just to keep you informed of their 
perspective, you know, would have been nice. But I think you guys did a great job working under you. difficult circumstances. Yeah, and you know, to to Mark's credit, he he is steeped in all of this stuff and, and knows all of the history really well. So, yes. um, you know, it was it was actually really fun putting the story together with him. Great. Yeah. All right, Emil. What else do you guys want to know about? <laughs> I think that's I think that's great. That's terrific for now. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Thanks for, coming, a lot for by. coming on and helping us out. And um, you know, keep cutting your hair up there in uh, Maine. Behave yourself. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was fun. So, Jeff, I understand you attended a conference this week, one of the most important conferences, really, in the in the financial advice uh, industry. But of course, you attended it virtually. That's the Morningstar Conference, which is usually held, I believe, in June in Chicago. Yeah, that's uh, right. And is always always a big deal. I've just been a couple of times, um, not recently. Usually when I've been in Chicago for something else and I can tack on a day or two, it's a fantastic meeting, really, because you have everybody from the financial advice and the asset management world kind of intersecting. And it's unique because it's held by Morningstar, which is its own you know, platform in and of itself. It's, it's uh, that advisors use, of course. So how was that as being a massive conference? I'm just curious to know, how was that? And what was your, what did you get out of it, if anything? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a great conference, I thought, um, for what it was. Uh, keeping in mind, it was virtual. So I never left my home office. But you're right, Morningstar <laughs> is a legendary Behemoth conference in June. Uh, It's you're there for three or four days in Chicago, and it's it's all morning. All the top money managers, all all the top, but all the top money managers are there. As reporters, as you know, once you're signed up for this thing, you get you get virtually carpet bombed by uh, PR people trying to set up interviews with their people. For a reporter, you're very busy writing stories, hustling, doing interviews, and there's that you know, the required cocktail hours and stuff like that. And the, the right. famous uh, Morningstar media dinner. But anyway, so <laughs> I was kind of no, oh, you're Morningstar. making me wistful. You're making yeah. me wistful. That's all so much yeah. fun. And it's, being out uh, of my apartment, uh, you know, I mean, with other people. The good old days. Um, yes. It's, it's some 2019. <laughs> but anyway, so I was expecting and I was looking forward to this and I, I'm looking forward to yeah. other big conferences coming up. I think the FPA has got one coming up in a month or so because Morningstar does things big with these conferences. And and I I, wanted, I will say it was two days long. It just wrapped up today. To, this is Thursday, uh, September 17th. And um, I was kind of expecting a little more bells and whistles, you know, maybe a hologram or something like that to appear in, in my, you know, my home office. Uh, so Elvis? Somebody, you want yeah, Elvis you know, to maybe, be no, Don Phillips, man. I wanted Don Phillips to show up and, you know, <laughs> hand me a pair of sunglasses or something. I don't know. They did do some cool things. They, uh, for the first 1,200 registrants or something like that, they sent them a, a conference package. I, I was not on that short list. So... But I, you know, I saw some of the stuff on Twitter. They got, you know, different kind of little tchotchkes and things. It was, it you was well done. You love You love the uh, Yeah, me too. I, I miss them. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of stress balls. <laughs> they, yeah, they, um, they, they had a few of the basic tech glitches, real minimal, yeah. nothing serious. People sounded good and looked good. It was, it was 
you know, essentially a series of webinars, good content, the kind of content you always get at Morningstar. Uh, what I thought was interesting that they did, they have some live live content and then they, they backloaded some uh, like previous uh, like seminars and stuff like that, that you could kind of log into at your leisure. I think uh, people that needed them could get up to 17 CE credits, which is always nice. From my perspective, it was easier to cover. I, I wrote four stories over two days. Like I said, you, you don't have to jump from room to room. You just you know, cover it and, and write it. Um, there's no opportunity to do interviews with people after the panel. You can't walk up to the to the stage. There's no handshaking, which which I'm a fan of because I've never been a fan of handshaking. Um, I'm a I'm a devout germaphobe, as as most people know. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't know that. I, I love the fist bumping now, you know, and even the oh. elbow bumping. Yeah, I think I I think handshaking is a filthy habit. But <laughs> and but also, you know, there's no networking. There's no cocktail hours. There's no side meetings. There's no. What I'm wistful for are those when you're in the conference and you've been there, you started at seven or eight in the morning and then it's four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Everyone's rushing to the bar and you're kind of standing to the side. And, you know, I'm thinking about what I got to write or do I have five minutes to call my kids or something like that and, and all that kind of stuff. And then you see somebody whom you haven't seen in a while or like a source uh, yeah. from 10 years ago about something else or something. And it's just those, those kinds of serendipitous moments. If yeah, I'm that, going to use a big word is, there, that, that is so much fun, you know, that's the best and, part of those conferences, I yeah. think. And you, you, and it's it, one of the great things about being a journalist too, is right, kind and, of running into people, you know, and there's so much media at these things that you see all oh, the media that, you know, right. people you and used you to work with, with and yeah. And you you're compete competing with, with and yeah. it, it's, it's a, the networking is the part that you just cannot replace in a virtual conference. You you just can't. And I think yeah. everybody feels that way that attends a lot of conferences. I generally attend a lot. But um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of good content, but, you know. So it sounds like a solid B if you were to give it a grade. It sounds like a B, B plus yeah, range. I got, like I got what, what I was looking for. I got some stories and I didn't have to shake anybody's hand, but I didn't get any, uh, I didn't get any cocktail But no hours. hologram of Don Phillips. No, no. Hologram, hologram of Don <laughs> Phillips did not show up in my office offering me a pair of Morningstar sunglasses. So, Oh, that uh, would, if that, that happened, I would, that would terrify me. <laughs> I'd be jumping out the fire escape here. I mean, Jesus. No, Don Phillips know. is a happy, gentle man. He's a good guy. <laughs> He's a great guy, but it would still scare the bejesus out. Right. Well, there you have hey, it. Jeff. That's my wrap up in the open notebook. Uh, it was a, it was a Boy, solid. Well, you come up B, with these like open notebooks, man. <laughs> I'm always with the closed notebook. You always got the open notebook. Hey, Jeff, that was another great uh, episode, I think. Y- yes, sir. So if it's Monday, it's got to be time for a new investment news uh, podcast. Uh, This week, I just want to say, Jeff and I just want to thank our special guests, uh, our insurance and retirement reporter, reporter Emil Halle. And as always, we want to thank Stephen Lamb, our own personal tech guy, who's one of the best in the business. Um, And Jeff, you can find the investment news podcast all over the place. You know, you Mm -hmm. can find it at investmentnews.com. You can go to Apple and maybe write a review on Apple. That would be great if you did that. You can find it on Spotify. That's where I like to get my podcast. 
You can get it on Google Play and you can get it on Stitcher. And if you want to comment to Jeff or I personally, Jeff or me personally, rather, you can give us a shout out via Twitter. Jeff's uh, handle on Twitter is at Benji Ryder. And me, I'm Bruce Kelly. I am at BD News Guy. So thanks. Thank you all very much for listening. And uh, we'll be talking to you next week.